discuss climate change. I guess that's what we're calling it. We might update it in like two minutes. But essentially, I have was inspired that we need an episode on this topic um, because of literally everything that's going on right now. And then I realized I don't really know anything about what's going on. I just hear all these things and read all these things. And I wanted to know what's true and what's not true. And do I need to be vegan. Well, I am vegan. I'm going to stay vegan. But like, are there other things that are more important than I should be doing? And then I realized like no one in medicine really seems to know anything about this. And I was like, I don't even think I have any friends that know anything about this. I don't know anyone in the field. So this episode is for me, but for everyone else who is just as confused as me and is concerned about, quote, climate change, but doesn't really know what they should be doing about it since it can feel a bit overwhelming at times. So, luckily, I was introduced to someone, our lovely guest, Renata, who is a bit more of an expert on this subject than I am, and she can tell you a little bit more about what her background in environmental stuff is and what led her down that path. Okay, so I'm Renata. I am currently an NSF uh, graduate research fellowship um, at UCLA, and my work will be to research how urban agriculture um, impacts dietary carbon footprints and public health in marginalized community in Los Angeles County. I actually did not have much of a climate background until my undergraduate degree. Um, Surprisingly, I was a bikini waxer for a long time. <laughs> I was in the cosmetology field, um, actually started as a makeup artist, went to working in salons, in aesthetics, um, and then went into instructing in cosmetology. Um, and it was at that point, I think I had applied for like a sales position with the company that I was at, and I didn't get the job because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. So I was like, I'll go back to school and I'll get my bachelor's and then I'll be able to get this job um, or I'll get a nursing degree or a PA and I'll go work in plastic surgery. So that was my plan. Um, Very not climate focused. (laughs) Um, uh, But I was working as a biology tutor and I was working with this one professor and she was like, Hey, I'm teaching environmental biology next term. You should take my class. And I was like, that sounds great. I care about climate change because I think that's what we all think. Like we're like, we care about this. (laughs) We don't want climate change to happen. Um, and I took that class and it really rocked my world. Um, kind of nothing was the same afterwards. I was like, wow, things are a lot worse than I thought. I feel Mm -hmm. like I need to switch career paths and go into this field that I felt like I would make a bigger difference in. Um, I wasn't a parent at that point, but um, during my undergraduate degree, after I had switched to environmental science, um, I got pregnant and Mm -hmm. twins. And so (laughs) they were born my last year of my undergrad degree, um, which zero out of 10 would recommend having twins <laughs> while you're in your undergrad. Yeah, can't even imagine. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we, we worked it out, but, um, but yeah, it, it was after they came that I really was like, okay, this isn't just like me caring about this. This is like 
they are inheriting this world that yes. I'm not working for. So it totally changed everything um, at that point. Um, so I graduated when they were eight months old. And for a while, I tried to find jobs. But it's really hard in the environmental field, especially if you just have a bachelor's degree, um, to find a job. Um, a lot of the stuff is pretty poorly paying. Um, yeah. And since I had two kids to put in daycare at one time, it, it just didn't make sense. So for a while, I was just a stay-at-home parent, um, but I started my Instagram, which is how we met. <laughs> um, yes, I love it. <laughs> and basically to try and make climate education more accessible to people. Um, because I was just like, if we have to wait until everybody gets an environmental science degree, we're screwed. Yeah. Um, so I wanted it to be something that I could take this information that I learned and help other people understand it. Um, and through pretty pictures of bread, because that's what I'm known for. <laughs> um, so yeah. So, and then recently last year, um, I was actually on Instagram on somebody's account and they posted a study about consumption related emissions, um, and who sort of demographics wise emits the most and who is burdened by those emissions. Um, yeah. and so I was reading the study and I was like, wow, I wonder how this changes with food. And I also wonder how this changes with local food. And that's exactly how I came up with my topic. So I only submitted an application to one graduate program, which I also would not recommend. Um, <laughs> but uh, after that, that's I, my MO. I've, I've done that <sighs> like the past, I would say three times I had to apply somewhere just minimal. <laughs> I would not yeah, recommend I mean, it either. <laughs> it was, it was okay. It was just that like I met with somebody and uh, she was willing to be my advisor, but she was like, this program only takes four or five people. So you need to have a basically like a super strong application in order to do this. Um, she's like, and it would really help if you could come in with funding. She's like the NSF um, application closes in six days. Do you think you could throw together an application really quick? Oh my God. <laughs> so I did. And I was like a snowball's chance, you know, I'm not going to get this. Um, and then I got, so that was in September and in February I got denied from the program, rejected from the program that I wanted to go into. Um, but then in April I got the NSF grant. So, and for those of you who don't know, um, the graduate research fellowship funds you for three years. So they pay you a stipend and they pay all of your tuition costs and research costs. So it's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. so I went back to the program and I was like, uh, does this change anything for you? And they were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you know, that was a little bit stressful, which is why I don't recommend only applying to one program. Um, but thankfully, my advisor, um, the, the original program that I applied for was interdisciplinary. So they wanted you to have um, faculty on your you know, committee from more than one department. Um, and so my advisor, who was willing to work with me, was actually from civil and environmental engineering. So she was able to get me in through that department. So I will be going for a PhD in environmental engineering. 
um, which is which, very different from bikini waxing. <laughs> which is amazing, but though. Excited. <laughs> yeah, because clearly we need more of that. And number one, I I think like your evolution in your career is really fun because who thinks someone would go from bikini waxing to you know a PhD in essentially like environmental based science? But were you horrified I like it. when you found out or when you realized how much? I would, and this isn't to knock on the, you know, the aesthetic industry or waxing industry, but were you kind of horrified to find out how much or how they dispose of their wax or like, you know, I, it's like a a stick, you throw it out, a stick, you throw it out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I was horrified about all of it because I just really didn't understand how much of my daily choices impacted my carbon footprint and not even just my carbon footprint, my environmental footprint, my resource footprint. Um, because I think that's sort of um, a misconception when we talk about climate change is everybody's like, well, it's just CO2 in the atmosphere. Like we just have to get the CO2 out of the atmosphere. And it's like, no, it's, we are literally changing every facet of our planet and we need to not do that because there's too many of us um, and not enough resources. So <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was pretty horrified, but I think I was equally horrified by like how much my diet impacted my carbon footprint and how much travel impacted my carbon footprint and everything um, I did was yeah. not moving in the direction that I wanted to be moving. Yeah. And I think it like what you said about like having your twins and then that made you think about like, you know, this is bigger than you and the world that they're going to inhabit or hopefully be able to inhabit is really I guess where it's at now and I think what I think about a lot is everyone should care about this but especially if you have children because I feel like you can't really care about your like if you love your children you want them to be able to live so caring about our planet is essential to that. It's the ultimate gift that you're going to be leaving them. So, Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is like they are inheriting problems. Mm. And the more I can do in my generation, the easier it will be for them. But if we do nothing, they are going to like, you know, there's that Obama quote. I think it's something like, we're the first generation to feel the effects of climate change and the last generation that can do anything about it. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's kind of horrifying because, you know, we will see massive reductions in the population that we can support, you know, um, which means that it's not my kids, somebody's children, somebody's grandchildren will be dying because of climate change. And the reality is, is that that's already happening. Like, yeah, how many people a year die from air pollution and other causes, um, you know, but it's not as prevalent and it's not as visible as it will be in the future. And I also don't think people have... I want to go back to what you said about, well, if I have to wait for everybody to get an environmental science degree, you know, that a change is going to happen. It's not a degree. I mean, really, it's just people have to have even the most basic. And I think that even starts with just acknowledging the problem. People just have to have the most basic understanding um, and, and, you know, just kind of educate themselves. But um you know, I, I think that, like you said, there's there are currently a lot of deaths and health problems, um, but the fact that I don't think that, you know, it's it's 
as upsetting or as obvious is because I don't think that people can see how it's related to climate change. They just, you know, if there's increased, if there's like a cancer cluster, you know, people are not very quick to say, well, is this because of something that's going on in this area? Um, Because no one wants to link it back all the way to the top. Um, That's not, people aren't very comfortable with that. So I think that um, once we can start assigning or, you know, putting responsibility on this, I think people will will care a little more. I hope they do. Yeah, I think too, it's hard if we look at COVID, right? How many deaths have there been? How many people have gotten sick? And there are still people who are like, it's the same as the flu, you know, like masks are like, you know, and that that's ignoring the people who believe like crazy conspiracy theories about like this being like a 5G syndrome or whatever. So I think a lot of people just really can't you know, comprehend a threat until it is causing a lot of very immediate deaths in the moment. And the problem with the climate change specifically is if it got to that point, I think we'd really be looking at, you know, almost essentially no recovery. So people have to be future oriented about this. Um, So before we go any further, Renata, do you want to sort of just tell people what climate change is? Because I think that's one of the points of this episode. (laughs) Like if we could even define it on a basic level, because I think there's a lot of confusion about what it actually even is. Yeah. So if you look at just like a basic definition, it's climate change includes both the global warming driven by human emissions of greenhouse gases and the resulting large scale shifts in weather patterns. Um, But like I said, it's it's really beyond that. Um, We sort of talk about it as like the climate crisis, right, instead of climate change, because change just is like, oh, it's going to get warmer. We're going to have summer for longer. It's going to be great. Uh, no, (laughs) it's not going to be like that. Um, and like I said, it's, it's beyond just the carbon emissions that we're putting in the atmosphere and how it's warming the planet. It's the ocean acidification, it's air pollution exposure, it's exposure to toxic, you know, chemicals, which I don't like that, like chemicals, because I feel like there's a sort of chemical phobia that happens. Yeah. But but um, but toxic exposure to pollutants is a real thing. Um, and, and that's another thing to tie back to what we were talking about before. Most of the climate change deaths that we will see won't be directly related to warming. There will be some that are related to warming because obviously we know, I'm sure as you guys know as physicians, like, you know, on extreme heat days, people die um, if they don't have, you know, if they're outside, um, Mm -hmm. they're, you know, without shelter, or if, you know, they are in a building that doesn't have, you know, central air, um, you know, that is dangerous to people. But most of the deaths will be from things like air quality or water quality or sort of compounding effects. Like if you look at who's being harmed now, like low income communities, communities of color, Um, And there's not just like one factor that's harming them. It's, you know, the air quality in those areas. It's, you know, lead exposure. It's it's all sorts of things. You know, Um, it's interesting, kind of, and I don't know, I don't even, I know this is true. I just, um, I'm not sure the details, but um, they actually had 
moved the flight pattern. I want to say of either LaGuardia or JFK um, because they wanted to have, I guess, the U.S. Open. And they noticed that planes flying was very disruptive. And then they kind of studied the areas where the planes were flying, you know, constantly. And they noticed there was higher rates of heart disease in these communities because of the constant stress, which you know, is so interesting, but it, it kind of relates. It's not just what you think about and not even toxic, but any type of element in too high of a level um, in air quality and even things like constant noise pollution is also, you know, included. Yeah. Noise pollution, light pollution, all of these things are, you know, sort of human caused. Um, we talk about being in the age of the Anthropocene, which is basically the age of human impact like we have drastically changed our world in a very short period of time um, and we continue to do that we continue to use more resources and it's not slowing down so you know we need people to be educated about it um, I'm a big believer in we should be teaching kids climate science like starting in preschool and kindergarten um, because this is something that we all need to know, like the back of our hand in order to get out of this. I definitely agree. And I think one of the things is someone can not have too much of an idea about what, you know, the climate situation is, um, but they're starting to realize it's an issue and they want to do things about it. And like the first thing they're thinking about is like, let me tell my friends about this and tell them they should be worried too. And what often happens is someone will bring up some sort of argument about why this is not a real thing. So I was hoping before we go any further, we could address some of the common arguments. So if anyone who's listening, either one doesn't believe that climate change is a real thing or Two, they, you know, would like to present something to like, you know, their um, Trump loving father about who thinks that climate change is a hoax. So I was going to go through uh, the first one that I've heard is that, well, um, you know, people will be like, and this is not as much right now, I guess, but I remember especially when we were referring to this global warming, people will be like, well, you know, well, this today it was zero degrees and it's you know March so that can't be a thing so so much for global when, warming huh yeah. oh my gosh so I guess we, if we no could address <laughs> extreme temperatures and what that means yeah so that is you're right extreme temperatures um, on the highs and the lows is part of it um, you know we used to call it global warming because of the trend we see with um, you know, rising overall climate, right? And I guess we could say, you know, climate is different from weather. Weather is what we experience from day to day. Climate is like the overall trends that we see. So we're seeing warming trends, but part of that warming trend also means that we are also experiencing more water in the atmosphere, which is going to be more intense storm systems. Um, so we're going to see more things like, you know, polar vortexes and, you know, stronger hurricanes and, um, you know, more anomalies with storms um, as a result of the changes in our climate. So just because it's cold doesn't mean it's not changing. Um, and really, like, all you have to do is look at it. Like, every year has been the warmest year on record. 
Yeah. You know, like 2019 was warmer than 2018, which was warmer than 2017 and so on and so forth. Like it's always a warming trend. Um, and what I tell people is don't think of it as this is the warmest year that we've had on record. Think of it as this is the coolest year we're going to have for. Right. Like you're, you're never, you're as young as you'll ever be right now. Yes. And now what do people say, um, when, and I've wondered this too, but not in a denial, you know, way. I was just curious because I'm sure it it does have some effect. Um, Is there a bias between the technology they had to record the temperature back in like 1920 um, versus now? I mean, I know we're still trending up regardless, but um, is it we have more data now and we have more ways to, you know, we can go into a glacier and pull out, you know, we can see all the different um, layers in the ages, but do you think that that's at all significant? I'm definitely, uh, I mean, I'm not super well-versed in terms of like exactly what the, you know, temperature recording technology was like (laughs) way back when, when we first started recording it. But, you know, you mentioned the ice cores and that is a really important thing because we can pull ice cores and we can see that data um, going all the way back. So for anybody who's not familiar with an ice core, um, it's like a cylinder of ice that they pull out. And what they can do is they can see the gas bubbles trapped in the ice um, and they can quantify how much carbon was in the atmosphere at that point in time. Um, so, you know, we definitely have the data that is like, yep, this is a problem. I, I, I kind of <laughs> answered my own question there. Yeah, no, yeah. It, and, and it's actually not just ice cores, you know, we can like look at, you know, bogs and um, swamps we can you know we can look at all sorts of different points of data and it's all trending in the same direction Um, and what we're actually seeing now which I think we should mention is that you know we've been we've known about the climate crisis for a while now right Um, like we probably really started hearing about it in like the 90s Mm -hmm. Um, the ozone the whole yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and So the models that we used way back when were basically validating them. Like we're seeing that, you know, oh yeah, back then we predicted that we would be warming by this amount if we put this much more carbon in the atmosphere. And we're seeing like, yep, that's a thing. Um, And whenever you look at, (laughs) I know, I know it's well, and what's really depressing is whenever you look at those modeling, they always give you like a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. Are we always at the worst? (laughs) We're pretty bad. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like you know, they say that at, like, we really wanted to keep warming at, like, 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, and that, like, major impacts to our life would happen, and, you know, human population would happen at the 2C mark. Um, We're trending way beyond that. Um, If, like, to to hit 1.5 C, we would literally need to start today, to make some like massive infrastructure changes um, in order to like hit that target. And we're just not there. Like we, we're still fighting for funding. Like yeah. <laughs> environmentalists are still massively underpaid. <laughs> like, you know, we, we, we are basically trying to convince people that we're not lying to them, you know, instead of being like, how can we solve these problems? So we spend so much of our time studying like, okay, like, 
I I kind of feel like it's like vaccines, right? Like Mm -hmm. how many times do we need to study that vaccines don't cause autism before somebody believes us, (laughs) right? And that's the same sort of thing with climate change. Like how many times do we need to prove this to you guys that like, this is a problem. Can we please do something about it now? Like we could be using our research money to talk about mitigation strategies. Like, So what do people think that we're trying to pull over on them for the people that believe that climate change is a hoax. Why do they think that you have a, a, there's a dedicated fellowship program. There is funding programs for this. For example, um, for anti-vaxxers, people believe that they, they think that there's chemicals that are injected into them and they think there's all this mind control experiment and tracking and things like that. What do people think that, why are we wasting their time with, with this, quote unquote climate change what do they think art you're making up it's the communist agenda Allie come on yeah but honestly that's I'm just saying that because Allie there's no answer to your question when people are want to have literally diluted beliefs you like you can't reason with someone who's determined to deny reality and there's a part of them that you know I gets something out of this but if you're not that person it's very difficult to understand because it makes no Uh, sense I think they just like to argue I think some people just like to to you know disagree with everything and argue but I'm just wondering Renata have you heard any has anyone said anything stick out in your mind that always you know always sticks with you that someone said that's just absolutely you know incorrect well so it's funny because i mentioned that naomi klein book because one of the first things um that she talks about in that book is uh the reason that people deny climate change right because they're saying like they're gonna take away our cars our suvs they're gonna like everything's gonna change and they use that as the basis to deny climate science right but the sad thing is is that they're right (laughs) like everything is going to change um but unfortunately, them not wanting things to change does not make it, you know, negate very, that, like, mm, this is actually a thing. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, they're going to feel the effects of it, whether they want to or not, you know, and a lot of them already are. Like, if you look at, like, the farmers, you know, like, a lot of them probably don't believe that climate change is a thing, yet they're going to see reductions in their crop. They're going to see, you know, changes in pests, all sorts of things that are related to the human impact on the earth. And, um, and the, yeah. the sad yeah. thing is if they believe it, they can help fix it and maybe not lose their SUVs. But Anna, what is it? Is it called something in psych? Is it like a developmental stage for children when you, if you don't believe in something, then it can't hurt you? Like, is that, is that kind of like a defense mechanism? I mean, mechanism? like a five-year-old's maybe, like, right? That's like, <laughs> you should grow out of that. I mean, first off, so the book we're referencing is called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, which is uh, by Naomi Klein. But what I think about is really, when I think of this climate stuff, we can just literally draw parallels with COVID. There are so many memes made out of people posting on like Facebook, like, you know, COVID is a hoax, don't wear mask. And then it's like their obituary. So right, just because you don't believe in something doesn't change anything. What's going to happen is going to happen. Or even like very sad, like they denied it, then they like posted that they got it and they were really sick and like, you know, I was wrong, and then they're dead. And we can also think about, like, our government's role in in COVID and how 
they, uh, you know, were denying that it was aerosolized. Uh, people were the everyone in positions of power, like hospital admins and stuff, were mask shaming. They were saying you don't need to wear your mask. I remember even outside of that, like at the beginning, I posted like a PSA with my friend saying wear a mask and people were like you need to leave them for healthcare workers like lay people shouldn't be wearing masks so you know there's just so much craziness so this parallels it perfectly except for COVID you know the deaths will be limited to hundreds of thousands maybe low low millions max um but with this it could be the whole population yeah I mean, I think that's like a hotly debated topic right now in terms of like, will we actually wipe ourselves out? But like, who really wants to find out? <laughs> like, right, exactly. you know, like, what's the point of arguing this? Like, can't we just try and not wipe ourselves out? Like, my husband's an aerospace engineer. Um, and so his like whole thing is like, well, let's, you know, make it feasible for us to get off the planet. And I'm like, how that's about we just not, the not screw up <laughs> yeah, the one that we've got? Like, right. You know, um, yeah. yeah. So another thing that I guess people bring up and I'm just going to go through so that everybody can have answers to all of these normal, you know, um, climate change denial responses is the people who argue that, and I guess this is what it goes into when we reference it as climate change versus the climate crisis with people will be like, Oh, it's natural and normal. Like there have been dramatic temperature shifts at other points in history, although obviously we're not talking about like just temperatures day to day, but what do you think is like a good thing to answer to people? So they're right. Things like that. Right. Like the, the planet does go in cycles of warm periods and ice ages, right? Like we have the data from those ice cores. Um, but the difference is, is that those natural shifts occurred over millions of years naturally um, and naturally. that occurred naturally well yeah. and sometimes they didn't occur naturally right like we should you know we should say uh, sometimes it was like you know uh like the meteor that all oh, right caused problems for the dinosaurs right like i mean i guess that could be argued as natural too but like you know sometimes it was an event that caused you know sort of a cascading effect but even in that case you know it was a fairly gradual change right like you know not everything was wiped out all at once. Um, and there, you know, we can, we've studied these mass extinctions, um, which is another thing that we should talk about is, you know, the loss of biodiversity that we're seeing because of humans. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. um, and we know, we, we can see that those mass extinctions, um, through the fossil record occurred over, you know, periods of thousands and millions of years. Um, we're doing this, in basically like, you know, the geologic time scale blink of an eye. Um, and I actually pulled something up to talk to you about the history of Earth on a 24-hour clock. So if you count on the 24-hour clock, it's the beginning was the formation of Earth, right? Like the origin of life didn't happen until 4 a.m. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the oldest fossils are 5.36 a.m., Um, you know, and these are like single celled organisms in the ocean, um, single celled algae appeared at about 2.08 PM. Um, sexual reproduction came at 6 PM, jellyfish at 8.48 PM, dinosaurs were at 10.56 PM. Um, and humans literally came in this 
clock at 11.58 and 43 seconds. So two minutes before the 24-hour clock. That's how long we've been on the Earth, right? And in, you know, and that's all of human history. Like all of humanity, like from even before history. So we have seen this massive shift in the climate in the last 400 years, you know, like since the Industrial Revolution. So it's a huge, fast shift that we know is caused because of us, because we can literally track the carbon emissions since so, the Industrial Revolution. That is a lot, and this is how I'm going to phrase this, that is a lot of science that you're <laughs> asking people to believe. Oh, yeah. You're asking, because some people have a very different fundamental understanding about how the world came about. And I mean, you know, we all took biology. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, we'll post that. That sounds great. But that's asking a lot of people who already have their minds made up. That is, is yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it is true. Um, you know, I'm not really sure how we can convince those people who don't believe in evolution <laughs> to like yeah. believe stuff that is like, oh, this is how we know. But But again, even if we just look at the human history, even if we ignore you know, the glaciation periods, like we can literally track the warming of the planet with our carbon emissions. Like you, you look at the graphs and they are completely in line. So we know that it's us. It's without a doubt, like the scientific community is pretty well <laughs> agreed on this. So, you I know, think that's another thing too. A lot of the people who they'll be like, oh, scientists don't agree on this. And, like, you know, they found, like, one whack job on YouTube. Or they just don't agree on little details. You know what I mean? Like, overall, I think it's kind of... And it's never climate scientists. Like, I'm pretty... I've never seen an example of, like, a climatologist or, you know, um, you know, somebody who studies biodiversity or things like that. Like, none of them are the ones that, like really deny climate scientists like occasionally you'll see like a theoretical physicist be like nah but um but it's really not their area yeah exactly like theoretical physicists yeah i mean most of the time it's like you know okay this, you know it's usually people who don't have a good grasp on the data because the data is clear at this point like we've studied this up down sideways like all over the place we know that this is happening and the more we study it, the more we find out how bad it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, another thing that's happened to me is I think I was in like med school and I didn't know anyone, you know, in the environmental science world besides this one guy who had like a bachelor's in the environmental field. He was also Republican and I'm just going to put that out there. But anyway, um, <laughs> he was like, he was like, well, you know, he was like, for example, people say uh, the Antarctic ice is melting, but in other areas it's increasing and blah, 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 blah. And that's another argument I've heard is common, like people being like, oh, well, you know, the ice is melting at one pole, but it's increasing at another pole. What about like that claim specifically that people say as a evidence against all of this? I mean, I feel like you can use that, the same logic um, and the same argument against the people who are like, but it was cold today, <laughs> you know, yeah. like – it doesn't matter whether, you know, this small instance says, oh my gosh, there's more ice. Like, okay, great. That one glacier has more ice. What about all the other glaciers that are, you know, 
totally screwed, (laughs) you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it really doesn't matter to take small anecdotes like that. Um, Like you can't use that against the trend of what we know is going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's, everybody agrees. (laughs) Um, And I feel like anybody who doesn't agree really hasn't read the data. Like maybe they're just listening to who they want information. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They're picking and choosing They're cherry picking their data because yeah, I mean, literally every, every person with an environmental science degree that I know is like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Um, And also I want to, say that um, something that we have to talk about is uh, sort of the positive feedback loop that's going to happen. So we're going to hit this point, you know, while we're probably still debating the validity of climate science, that it will be too late for us to really make the impact that we need to make um, because of something called the ice albedo effect. Um, And I'll try and keep this as simple as I can, but um, as the sea ice is melting, like when we have a lot of ice in the Arctic Circle, um, it reflects a lot of solar radiation back into space. But when we have less ice, that darker color of the water actually absorbs solar radiation. So it's like a positive feedback loop. Like when you wear black in the summer and it gets, and you're hot. Yes, exactly. So so the more ice we lose, the faster we warm because of this ice albedo effect. Um, and at some point, it's, you know, it's going to be like a runaway train, right? Like, right. we just won't because have the ice to reflect it. Bigger masses are melting. You're having bigger changes in that, in that spectrum that, you know. And is sea ice, you're, that's the same as glaciers or is there... No, so, well, so sea ice, when we talk about usually the ice albedo effect, we're talking about the Arctic Circle, right? Where there's not land mass underneath it. Um, I see. It's just over water. Um, so like there's penguins and, and polar bears that float on them. Yeah, so it's okay. actually, it's, I mean, I know everybody knows the, like, polar bears are starving, right? But, like, it is this reduction of sea ice that's, like, gotcha. causing so many problems for the polar bears because, you know, they're losing their hunting territory and having a harder time finding food Um, but yeah so um but glaciers you know you'll see like glacier national park or mountains and things like that where you'll have it's basically to quote frozen two it's a big river of ice (laughs) 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 so sorry you know i have toddlers (laughs) both of the frozens (laughs) i have seen them and i'm not ashamed to admit it they're good movies (laughs) oh my gosh yeah i i loved the second one (laughs) Um, but yeah, so yeah, their river of ice, you know, um, usually overlaps. So, yeah, yeah. One thing I think, like the biggest question on everyone's mind, people who are you know normal people, but they've accepted that this climate crisis is a real thing. They're worried about it, and but they're confused. And I am one of these people, although we sort of talked about it, so I sort of know the answer to my own question a little bit. Um, but what are the biggest contributors to climate change? And if we can label something as number one, because I think a lot of us got introduced to this type of stuff by like watching Cowspiracy and things like that. And so 
we're not sure if what we learned from these movies are correct. And we would sort of know <laughs> oh, what, the, it, what oh, are the you, biggest Are you referring this? to the one hamburger <laughs> patty takes like 20 million gallons of water? That, that statistic is... That I'm referring is con- to the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to tell you right now, like you... I highly recommend that as many people as possible cut meat, as much meat as they can from their diet. But there is no such thing as going vegan. Like if everybody went vegan, we would save the world. Um, Like, you know, it definitely cuts carbon emissions. Like I'm not in any way arguing that um, to, you know, especially, you know, us in the U.S., we eat way too much meat, you know, Um, we eat way more than our body needs for protein. um, And obviously our practices with most animal agriculture is pretty terrible. Um, but there are practices of animal agriculture that actually sequester carbon. Um, so, you know, so I would say there's not really one thing that you can do. That's like, if we all do this one thing, like if we all give up our cars or if we all stop running our AC or we, you know, like the world's just not black and white like that. Everything's going to, depend on how you parse the data, right? If you want to look at greenhouse gas emissions, if you want to look at, you know, biodiversity, if you want to look at, you know, geographic location, like there's just no one size fits all climate solution, unfortunately. Um, I wish there was because it would be a lot easier for my job if I could just 100% advocate for everybody to do this one thing and then we would not be screwed. Um, But that's not the case. Um, you know, I, th- I would say the one thing that you have to do is you have to learn, right? You have to learn where your personal emissions are coming from. You know, like, for example, if you're vegan and you're flying to Europe from the U.S. every weekend, like, guess what? <laughs> your carbon emissions that you're saving from diet are, like, probably pretty negligible in terms of, like, your flight emissions, you know, or your travel. about yeah. that, actually. I li- I'm going to play devil's advocate. This does not no, reflect yeah. my beliefs. What about the people that say, oh, well, you know, that flight was going to take off anyway, whether or not I got on it, especially now that they're like half capacity. Well, yeah. I mean, they still flew the empty planes during COVID because the airlines don't want to lose their flight paths and they have to keep flying. So I'm, they would just fly empty planes. So it's pretty depressing. Even if you cut out you don't order the ticket like that plane is gonna fly no matter what and I think that points at you know needing like higher level change than what an individual can do yeah I mean I would honestly say like you know individual action is important because you know as consumers we often shape the market Mm -hmm. right like yeah. we're seeing that with greenwashing, right? People are wanting more sustainable solutions. So companies are like, look at this sustainable thing we made. You need to buy it. And it's like, and people are buying it. <laughs> right. And like, let me just say. And clear. The package yeah. is clear. Yeah. Yeah. Like right now, I'm going to tell you for the record, you cannot buy yourself out of the climate crisis. Okay. Like we're not going to, like, you can use your purchases as, you know, essentially a vote, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can decide what you would like to support with your dollars, but please, for the love of everything, don't go out and like, you know, buy an electric car tomorrow. The most, you know, the most climate friendly thing that you can do is use your car until it dies, you know, like, 
extend the life of your products as much as you possibly can. You know, again, this ties back to thinking about where your individual climate emissions lie. Um, And then most importantly, please, I'm begging you, vote for policy changes because policy is what we need right now. Like, I love that everybody is going vegan. I love that everybody is going zero waste. But that means jack squat if we can't change the policies about (laughs) airlines not being able to fly empty planes or like, you know, like most carbon emissions are not necessarily from like individuals. Most carbon emissions are from like 100, you know, energy companies, basically. Um, Like, you know, like it's, it's industry that is causing a lot of the emissions and a lot of the problems that we're seeing from like, you know, pollution, um, be it air, water, soil, habitat loss, like, you know, a lot of this is industry and industry has been permitted to do what it wants, um, because of policy. So if we change policy and we say, Hey, you can't do that anymore, or, you know, you need to at least be like, please, like, just be a little bit more thoughtful about it at least. Um, you know, or like move in a positive direction. Like we need the policy to be able to really make the changes that we need to make to get out of this mess. Like we won't be able to do this with just individuals going vegan and giving up plastic straws. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess that's something that, you know, everyone can take away this first off. I think everyone involved in this podcast is going to vote in November for Biden and whatever other people can hopefully get us out of this mess a little bit. You know, obviously we would hope that there were people who were taking a much more progressive stance on these things as options, but someone who's not going to speed us up towards, you know, a 10 degrees Celsius increase overall or something wild, which we don't even want to imagine what what would happen as a result of that, but everybody can vote and it's a really simple step to take. Is and- it? Because it doesn't seem like they're making it very simple with the ballot and mailing and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm going in person (laughs) and I know some people would say that's like, you know, they have health concerns that would make that, you know, not desirable for them. Or maybe they live in an area where God knows what is happening with the polls and lots of polling places are shut down or things like that. But, you know, everybody can at least attempt in some fashion to vote and hope that, you know, if they vote by mail, that it's like tossed out, you know, these things, you just have to try your best. And I'd say actually voting, if we think about the effort it takes comparatively to a lot of these things, which are complete lifestyle changes and like, you know, like Allie, you're vegan, I'm vegan, Jonah's vegetarian you know like we've made that change but there are more things that need to happen and i would also add to that please vote in your local elections because a lot of aggressive climate policy actually happens at like your city level you know Mm -hmm. um so don't just vote for the president and be like okay i did my part like get involved (laughs) yeah like you know, get to know the measures that are on your ballot, you know, get to know who your local officials are and, um, 
and how they're going to vote in, you know, because these are your representatives, right? Like not just the president, but like your city council members. Like, yeah, you, you know, I would actually really encourage people. Something that I would think would make a big difference is if people got more involved in their communities, like figure out where the biggest threat is in your area, because it's going to be different for all of us, right? Like for California, where I am, like, you know, wildfires are an issue, but you know, for my friend in Louisiana, you know, it's going to be hurricanes. Um, so it's going to be different for all of us in our own communities. And we're all going to need different strategies to impact our geographic locations and what's going on here. Um, and, you know, even smaller than that, like the neighborhood that I live in is right between two major freeways. And uh, we live five blocks from an oil refinery like that's wild (laughs) yeah it's it's really it's yeah um and you know it it's my local city council that is going to decide whether we're going to tax the oil operations in our city to fund you know racial justice um projects and climate projects right like so you know don't just vote for president, for Congress, get involved with your local politics if you can, because that's honestly where you're going to make the biggest difference for people who are impacted in your community. That's a great point. Thank you for for mentioning that because, you know, I think we're all so caught up, you know, in the, in the big election that, that that's really important too. Are there any good websites that you know about where people can like put in their zip code and like, I mean, I should look into it. I'm sure there's some sort of things. Because I think often maybe people would be like, yeah, I guess I should get involved locally. And they'll be like, how the F do I do that? Like, I don't know where to go from here. I don't even know what's going on, you know? I mean, start with your city's website, right? Figure Mm -hmm. out who represents your neighborhood. Figure out what they stand for. I mean, a lot of the times you can, like, actually get face-to-face with these people and, like, have a conversation with them and be like, hey, I'm your constituent. Like, these are the things that I give many fucks about. <laughs> Please yeah, tell me what your stance is. People might on not them. be doing this. Like they yeah. may have like dedicated office hours, like or some type of intern or some somebody that you know facilitates that. That no, it's a resource. Maybe nobody uses because nobody has the time, and maybe you know you could be the first, and then it could yeah. be up to you to spread the word. Yeah. And um, I'd also say, please get involved with the nonprofits in your area. Um, Because a lot of people, when they think about the climate crisis, they get really fired up and they're like, I want to do all these things. And like, chances are there's boots on the ground already doing the work that needs to be done. And the best thing that you can do is lend your support to those organizations. And they're going to be the ones that tell you, oh yeah, like, like for example, in our city, like our mayor front facing is like very like, (laughs) you know, green friendly, um, but when it comes down to it, like the, the refinery behind my house was expanding and I like wrote letters and like hit up him on social media and all this stuff. And it was like crickets. And I was like, okay, we're about to have like the largest refinery on the West coast, right behind a neighborhood that is already impacted by air quality. And this supposedly really green mayor doesn't care, you know? Um, so, you know, the nonprofits will be able to like tell you 
kind of more honestly, like how people have interacted with them and their work um, and in, and sort of what the trend has been in your community to, to make the changes that need to happen. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, and some people might not have nonprofits in their area. So sometimes you will need to sort of do grassroots activism, but grassroots activism works in a lot of cases. So you know, don't be afraid to start something. Like, even if it's just a Facebook group of like trying to find like-minded individuals or whatever, because, um, we're just a lot more powerful together than we are on our own. Yeah. Do you happen to know of any national nonprofits that have local branches that people can look into? Or is it more one of these things where try to type in the name of your city and like, yeah, I mean, there's obviously like, climate and you know, like Friends of the Earth, um, the Sierra Club, those sort of things. Like some of them, like some of the larger ones have like sort of questionable track records where it's like, oh, you're a climate organization that actually started drilling on your conservation land. <laughs> like, right. um, just you know, using the words to get the, you know, get the clout. And, yeah, yeah, and often get the money, you know. The money, um, exactly. Yeah, so... Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, I, I would sort of stress like go local instead of, you know, national, um, especially if you're in a non-major city. Um, but I mean, if you're in a major city, like there's definitely people that are doing work. Um, like for example, here where I live, there's an organization that I really love called East Yard, um, Communities for Environmental Justice. And their entire focus is advocating for the frontline communities who are currently actively and aggressively being harmed by pollution in the LA area. Um, so, you know, really throw your resources, your time, if you have time to volunteer, if you have money to donate, whatever it is, whatever you've got, <laughs> throw it at the people who are doing the work because that's how it's going to be most impactful. Yeah, I think that's definitely something I haven't been involved enough in, so I can look into it for myself. And it's, you know, good to know that there are opportunities to potentially, like, talk to people and attempt to make change. And maybe someone will listen to this and go into politics for us, hopefully. Maybe someone already yeah. is in politics that listens to us. I Please, mean, yeah. save us all. <laughs> then I guess the next thing I want to discuss, so we've established, like, advocacy is probably the most important thing because change on an individual level is certainly not enough at this point but if we go down to the individual level and we look at like diets and we've already essentially stated that if you can cut out meat that's great what things have you learned about like food and consuming food that you would like to share with others oh man I feel like I could talk for like four hours <laughs> on food. <laughs> um, and if anybody wants, like, please DM me on Instagram and I will send you a whole list of people to follow who are yeah, great we'll link in her. talking about sustainable food systems. Um, again, it's really going to be depend on your area because, you know, here in California, I have year round growing. So what I have the ability to do with my diet is very different from what somebody in Minnesota has the ability to do, um, mm -hmm. or New York, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you, there's shorter growing seasons, you know? So again, 
I feel like, feel kind of bad being like, there's no one size fits all solution. Um, I say the best thing that you can do is learn and learn from reliable sources. And I'm sorry, Cowspiracy is not one of them. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's engaging, but it's, it's got a lot of misinformation in there. Um, or I guess it should say it, it tells things from one's per- small perspective. Um, right. For the shock value and the, the yeah. Factor, yeah. I mean, okay. I would say one of the best things that you can do to fight the climate crisis is actually dive deeper into anti-racism work. Um, which I think a lot of people find surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it exposes, I think a lot of, well, you know, why is this neighborhood put there or, you know, Yes. Why is this resource not available here? And, and yeah, I think it yeah. uncovers a lot. And at the end of the day, like, you know, it really doesn't matter. Like, we can't tell everybody to eat all vegetables when people don't have equal access to vegetables. Exactly. You know, like my or neighborhood. Or that the salad again, is is fifteen dollars, but the burger, or you right. know, like McDonald's, the salad is more expensive than the burger. You know. So there's no one size fits all diet because um, it it comes down to accessibility. I would say that's my biggest thing with food is talking about food access and who has access to these more sustainable diets. And at the end of the day, if the sustainable solution is only available to the rich white people, we're not getting anywhere with sustainability because all that's going to do is make the polluters or, you know, the bad guys market Mm -hmm. more aggressively to the lower income people who don't have a choice Um, And they're going to cut their corners to make up for that loss for the people who do want to spend more. Um, So, so yeah, so I would say, you know, dive into anti-racism work, dive into food access. You know, if you can grow a vegetable garden, like if you have a yard, like do it, because not only does that give you a source of fresh food that can be pesticide free and herbicide free and whatnot, but it also just teaches you a lot about where your food comes from, how much work it takes to grow things. Um, You know, like, like this is another reason that I sort of think like veganism won't save us is because, you know, people talk a lot about like the ethics of cows and chickens, but nobody talks about the ethics of what their farm workers live through, Mm. you know, like migrant farm workers, have like a much higher rate of pesticide exposure um and you know they're worked terribly and And no benefits no insurance no benefits paid vastly under minimum wage like you know there's a lot of issues there's not just one issue we can't we can't boil things down to one hot take for sustainability um it just doesn't work and yeah so what do you think about the word or the phrase, you know, be honest, farm to table? You, is it like overused? Should like, you know, because a lot of places say that. What does it really mean? I mean, it's privileged as fuck. <laughs> Excuse my language, but, you know, uh, it's if you have that ability, great, go for it. But please also fight for the people who don't have that ability because, again, we're not getting anywhere in sustainability until things are accessible to everyone, until farm-to-table is accessible to the lowest income bracket. 
So Mm -hmm. I'm referring more like to restaurants that boast, oh, well, this is farm to table, seasonal, you know, preparations only. Is that true? You know, and, and, you know, is that really, um, like, can we believe that? And I mean, I definitely think it's, you know, there's something to be said for eating seasonal, right? Because your season, (laughs) what goes in your area seasonally. I mean, not, you don't have to eat all local food. In fact, um, I'm reading a book right now that was just talking about um, how farmed fish in, you know, somebody started farming this one type of fish outside of its native region, and it ended up actually being much more carbon intensive because they needed a lot of like filtration systems to keep the fish alive and mm. blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So they actually moved their operation to Vietnam where this variety of fish was originally from and it was actually like a lower you know carbon footprint of that fish so you know it's it's not always about local um but I would say definitely eating seasonal if you can for your fresh fruits and veggies um generally is you know like I think it's oh I should have put this statistic down for you but you know um things travel a long distance usually before they get to your plate. So if you can cut out some of those transportation miles, that is usually a reduction in carbon footprint, but not always because different farms have different practices. And again, it depends on where you are. Like here in LA, it's really easy to eat local because we have a ton of local food available. But for my friend, Sarah in Canada, (laughs) like, you know, in wintertime, she doesn't get the option to eat local, right? Because yeah, She's covered in snow. There's nothing growing unless you have a greenhouse, right? So um, so I would say farm to table is great if you can afford it, but it doesn't, it's not a guaranteed that's more sustainable because it really right. depends on the practices of that farm. I, yeah, that was where my, qu- my question yeah. is, is it like, you know, should we really feel like, oh, you know, this is farm to table, I'm doing the right thing. But yeah, you have to really see what that means. Yeah. So I guess this points out that there really need to be policy changes with food. Is there like a couple of like, you know, universal policy changes that you're hoping for? Or is it very individualized to someone's area? I mean, I would like to stop, like, I would like to see us stop subsidizing corn, soy, and canola to the extent of which we subsidize those. Um, Because in, in some ways, we're overproducing a lot of calories in the form of corn, and it's getting used for other things like animal feed, which then causes like higher methane emissions because that's not what the cows normally eat. Um, and it's also like, okay, now we're, you know, we have this excess of corn, so now we have to make ethanol. And, you know, um, so I would say that that's one thing that for the U.S., I would like to see us change our subsidies um, to be more diverse and to be, to be reflecting more climate friendly agriculture practices, um, kind of regardless of whether it's growing, what, whatever they're growing. And one other thing we had talked about privately, but I'm going to bring it up here on the podcast is we were discussing these food boxes that everybody's raving about. And some examples are like hungry harvest and imperfect produce. People will post them on their Instagram and be like, yo, I'm getting these uh, veggies that would have been like thrown out otherwise. <laughs> My carrot looks do like it. a sexy woman crossing her legs. <laughs> I mean, if you market. want sexy carrots, like more power to you. Like, 
I would find it hilarious if somebody's like, I exclusively eat sexy carrots. Um, but <laughs> no. And a lot of the times, and this is something that we should talk about, and I mentioned earlier, is like it's greenwashing, right? Um, in terms of like the imperfect produce, uh, like that's a problem, right? Food waste is definitely a problem, but like it's not so much of a problem as like the imperfect produce is not so much of a problem as think as it's been led to believe um, because a lot of imperfect produce just goes to be made into other things. So all the imperfect tomatoes go into making sauce. All the imperfect apples go into making, you know, um, apple apple cider or applesauce (laughs) or, you know, like, you know, they get um, transformed into other sort of value added products. Um, So, but I would say like, if you're at the grocery store and you notice that there's like one lonely banana that has a bruise on it and you don't care about that bruise, like buy that banana, because at that point it's not going to be used for something else and it will get tossed. Um, but like, I would say you don't have to go out of your way to buy only imperfect produce. And, you know, um, also fewer people have like squeezed it and like put their nail mark in it to make sure it was fresh. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, yeah, we can talk about germ transmission. (laughs) Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, I would would say just be aware of anything that like doesn't bring nuance into the conversation because anybody who like is making a claim, like this is the most sustainable thing you can eat is usually like BS. Um, so it's a marketing scheme. Yeah. You know? Like I mean, yeah. It's it's playing it's into everything. Like these places are advertising themselves as like, you know, all this stuff would just be thrown out and not used. But there I was reading some articles and it's actually taking away, like you said, the imperfect foods could be used for other things like m- making things, but even beyond that, a lot of them are being taken away I think from food banks. So yeah, I mean, and I haven't dug too much into the validity of those claims. I do work with like a lot of local food banks and stuff, but mm-hmm. um you know, that that is for sure a thing like, you know, again, that comes down to the issue of accessibility for like who can't access food and where where are their access points? So, if somebody's only availability to get nutrition is through a food bank or something like that, you know, we need to support them, you know, be it through food donations or money because a lot of those yeah. need it. You know? have, have you run yeah. into the issue? And I did a project on this um, where we went to med school. We had to do like a community project. And um, I we had gone to an area in uh, right where our school was. And there were a lot of, a big population of migrant farmers. Um, it, was a, it was a poor area and our we, our project was to determine whether or not people who utilized the food banks necessarily understood what could be done with some of the, the, the produce. Um, because it's one thing to have it available, but if you've never seen a butternut squash before, or, you know, you don't know how to cut an onion or saute just because no one's ever taught you, maybe you're, you know, a young single mother, um, you know, have you, are there resources in these food banks um, to, to kind of help with this? Sometimes. Um, I definitely know like Grow NYC, which is an organization that my aunt works for. Um, they have a chef who will teach people how to cook using things that they can get at the farmer's market with SNAP benefits. 
Oh, um, that's great. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, he's great. Um, David, oh, his, F, his name starts with an S. Anyway, he's great. I can share <laughs> with anybody who wants to know um, what his Instagram is. Um, I mean, yeah, I think there's two sort of things that we should talk about here. Like one, culturally appropriate food is important, right? And that's another thing that we can talk about with food. Like we can't tell everybody eat the same thing because not everybody's from the same culture and food is culture. So we need to be respectful and sensitive to that. We can't just be like, you all get a box of like, you know, stuff that like I would know how to cook with, but somebody might not from their culture. Um, so we can't treat everybody the same that way. We need to, we need to prioritize culturally appropriate food when available. Um, but also we can talk about like, um, not everybody has the time to cook, you know, and I'm sure you both experiencing med school probably went through phases where you didn't have a whole lot of time to make Mm -hmm. gourmet meals every night, including sauteing your onions and roasting a butternut squash. Um, so I definitely think that that's, you know, there's an argument for, you know, knowing the population that you are serving for a food bank or, you know, whoever's in your community. And, and instead of just being like, here's what you need, you need to eat fresh fruits and veggie being like, how can we help you? Like, what do you need? Do you need access to fresh fruits and veggies? Or do you really need somebody to like deliver a meal really quickly? Because, you know, if you're it's a not mom one size who's working all. three jobs, like, whatever, you're not going to like, you know, you're not going to cook the butternut squash. It's going to go to food waste, even if you got it for free, you know, because you don't have yeah. time to cook it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, so again, that's like, you know, a problem with capitalism <laughs> and the fact that some people can't afford to live. Um, so that should not be a thing if we're ever going to get out of the, <laughs> the climate crisis. Um, right. And I think it's important if you want to reach out, I know during I don't remember what – there was a crisis I've recently – my mind is just blanking because it's COVID. Um, but I, I wanted to help out, and I remember um, – I, I can't remember what it was, but I wanted to either um, volunteer at a, at a food shelter or something, and you call the places, and they're like, we have enough volunteers. We need this. So I think an important part is if you want to help, you're not going to help by giving them excess of what they need. I want to say, um, I think it was like during a, some type of storm, like a really bad storm, and people were, um, you know, donating things, and they're like, well, we have enough of this. We don't need any more of this. Please send us this. So it was just, it's, you have to make sure that if you do want to help, that your help is going to go to what is needed. Yeah. Please do not show up to organizations and be like, this is what you need, <laughs> you know, right. I have um, this. or Take any this. population yeah. of like, oh, you're low income, you need this. Like, you know, you go and you show up and you say, I have these skills and I value your mission. Like, how can I help? Like, please just start normalizing, asking how you can help instead of like, this is what you should do. Yeah, this is what I'm doing. This is convenient yeah. for me to give you this. So here you yeah. go. Yeah, I see this a lot, like, um, in food systems, like I work for a food nonprofit, and there's like a lot of fast food shaming that goes along, right? And people are like, uh, nobody should eat fast food. It's terrible for you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. It's probably not like the 
best nutritional quality that you can get, you know, but until there's no need for fast food, I don't think that we can demonize it. Like fast food exists to fill a gap, you know, like people need quick access to calories. Um, We see this a lot. Okay. This is, sorry, a little bit of a tangent, but um, school food, right? Like meals provided to students. Um, So there's a lot of people that sort of gripe about like, oh, the quality of the meals is not great and stuff, you know. Um, But that may be the only calories they're getting that day. So make sure that, you know, they get enough calories. Like, I'm sorry, eating like an apple slice isn't going to cut it. Yeah. And like what happened here locally is like, you know, the, the schools used to have like a salad bar available for the kids and like they got rid of the salad bar because none of the kids were eating it and it was like all going to waste. So like the most <laughs> like, yeah, I tell this people with 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 gardening all the time. People are like, oh, what's the number one tip with gardening? And I'm like, grow what you're going to eat. Yeah. Like because at the end of the day, the healthiest thing <laughs> that you're going to eat you know, is what you will eat. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I, I you know? do this with my patients all the time, um, with my stroke patients who are kind of just not wanting to eat. They, you know, and they need their calories. Otherwise, you know, it causes all these problems. So, I, you know, I always tell family members, I'm like, look, I know they're on like a, you know, a certain diet. We're supposed to say, you know, no heart healthy and, and this and that, but as long as there's no major health issues or major allergies, I'm like, just bring them something, like bring them a favorite food because at this point, getting the calories is more important than what it is. We just need them to eat so that they can, you know, perk up and and, and participate in rehab. So, you know, I get that. Yeah. I mean, accessibility again is the bottom line of the importance, like, you know, like, for example, with the school food thing, like, you know, there's a huge gap in summer food, right? So for some kids, like, you know, they get breakfast and lunch at school yeah. and that's their only meal. And then in the summertime, food insecurity goes yeah. way up and there's like probably a lot of hunger that's happening because people don't have access. And I'm not saying don't advocate for healthier quality ingredients or foods in, you know, fast foods, um, restaurants or schools, like we should absolutely do that. But at the same time, like what I am saying is please don't shame anybody. Right. Don't be so hard on on them. Yeah. Yeah, Like, you know, like again, there's no one size fits all diet. That's going to change everything. Like, you know, the best thing that we can do is connect with each other and figure out where people need help, you know? Yeah. Thank you for all that. I like that <laughs> tangent. That was a yeah. really good tangent, I, I think. That's, that's helpful. And I think it's like, you know, obviously everybody's different. I think a lot of our listeners, um, you know, the biggest constraint to their diets would probably be the time issue. A lot of people are obviously residents and very busy. And I will say during my intern year at the hospital, I was so busy that I was eating the best option at the hospital daily, which was Mm -hmm. Chick-fil-A. But, you know, uh, eating that every day does some stuff to your stomach. And now I could never, ever, ever do that again. But I think it's helpful just to think about, like, what are the best options for you? And then what are ways that you can help other people potentially have better options? Yeah, 
And if you know, like, right, like if you're in a hospital, my bestie um, is a psych NP and like, you know, she basically like lived off of string cheese <laughs> during her <laughs> single stuff. Like, that was all she had time for. But it's <laughs> funny. Like, Wait, well, it's really funny <laughs> because you have to like, did she eat it like, like how? Did she peel each individual piece and then you get I'm those sure like I'm sure she hair was pieces. biting it. <laughs> Because that's what you're doing, right? So, picture, like, but the, yeah, the food that takes the longest time to eat. <laughs> well, I mean, I, but I think like it was what was available. Right. Like I think it was like what was kept in the fridge where she was. Like so, that's yeah. what she had. Like and so you know, then we can like talk about like okay, like there's actually a lot of people um, advocating for healthier food in hospitals, right? Because they're like. Why is this is the like, hospital? This is supposed to be the and and I have this is terrible. I can't believe I'm admitting this. I have written like filed not filed complaints, but I have left comments in the con- comment box about how there's no vegan options in our hospital. Like we're supposed yeah, to you walk really, in really the cafeteria, bad. you smell like grease. Like it's just this is supposed to be a hospital where we promote healing and we're serving food, like let food be thy medicine. We're serving food that could, you know, clog your arteries, you know, for lack of a better term. And it, it's just so, it's like a, a dichotomy. Then it's so ironic that, you know, and I get, you know, listen, okay, I take it back. You know, if your family members in the hospital, you're going to want a comfort food. You just want a slice of pizza. I totally get that. But, the option should be there. And I think it swings yes. both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's actually an organization, just to continue this tangent, one more second, I promise we'll get off of this. <laughs> um, there's an organization in the Bay Area, I believe they're called Spur. Um, and one of their advocacy things is this thing called Food is Medicine, right? Where they're trying to get insurance companies to cover healthy meals delivered to people. I love that. Right. I mean, that would be great. Let food be thy medicine. Yes. Like, how can we tell you know a stroke patient? Right. Like, how can we tell them that they have to eat a specific diet when like we're not improving their income or their time management or anything like that? Like, you know, it's an accessibility issue. We have to make the food accessible if we're going to tell people that's what they should eat. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, sorry, one more, because now we're on it, just one more little point. (laughs) And this is, you know, just an observation. And I think a lot of people will agree that when somebody is sick and, you know, they have health issues likely brought on by diet, a lot of times they ask, well, okay, you know, uh, my blood pressure wasn't fixed with this medicine. What are we going to do? Or my sugars are still high. How are we going to change that? And really the only tool aside from the medicine is diet and no and it's hard because people don't really like to hear that you know and especially during COVID I noticed a lot of people's numbers were all over the place and I'm like okay I get it you know it was it was hard but you know this is ultimately what's going to make you feel better yeah yeah you know and it's it's 100% true but you know we just have to help people have have to fix the factors that are causing that accessibility gap, you know, um, because otherwise, I mean, that's why we see, right, low-income people having, you know, higher instances of heart disease and stroke and whatnot. 
they just well, don't and have I think the same all, thing. Yeah. And I think it's hard because we are fighting years of propaganda too from like – and that is one thing that like I guess Cal Spears and those <laughs> other documents mm-hmm. documentaries make a good point about is, you know, you're fighting years and years of propaganda of people genuinely believing, you know, that the things they're eating are healthy but they're in fact not. There was the Mer- so. the Morgan Spurlock uh, documentary um, that he – that was basically his whole – I forget what it's called, but it's like the newest Morgan, Morgan Spurlock, the guy who did the, um, he ate McDonald's like for whatever a month. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Supersize me. What was it? Yeah. Supersize me. He just oh had God, a, yes. he just put something out. I think I watched it on Netflix. I think when I was flying to go see you, Anna, um, and it was really good. It was, it started out with like all the old school ads from the fifties and like it talked about like the cornflakes thing and it, it, it was good. Yeah. I mean, and again, like a lot of that comes from like the subsidies, right? Like we're subsidizing corn, soy, and canola. So that's what gets advertised, right? Yeah. We're making high mm-hmm. fructose corn syrup out of the excess of corn that we're growing. <laughs> it's like supply, the opposite of supply and demand. We have this, we need to push it. Yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, it, there's, there's definitely an argument to be made for like certain crops store better. So they're better for like long-term food security, but but we don't need this much corn. <laughs> yeah. We just don't. <laughs> like, um, you know, if we we could subsidize way better stuff that would have a way better impact on not only the climate, but, you know, people's dietary availability. So a different topic that I wanted to move on to was transportation. And clearly it's come up a few times during this. And I think people have an idea, like, obviously, if you're walking or if you're taking public transit or if you're biking, if those are options for you, those things are, like, the more carbon friendly. I think then where it gets confusing is, like, you know, cars, a.k.a. driving, and how many people are in a vehicle and things like that versus flying. And then, you know, like you had said earlier, don't let the greenwashing situation with cars impact you because the most eco-friendly situation would be to drive your vehicle until you don't need it anymore. Um, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like, you know, how, how is this, how is what you learned or what did you learn about transportation specifically that's made you think differently about things? I mean, you can definitely choose how you travel, right? Like, we know that certain things emit less CO2 than others, right? Like, flying, well, flying is kind of uh, dependent on distance and dependent on plane capacity. Obviously, if you're the only Mm -hmm. one on the plane, like, yeah, your carbon footprint (laughs) for that flight is pretty high, regardless of where you're going. Um, But like, you know, like, for example, from like San Francisco to LA, right? Like, if you are not driving a gas guzzling truck, like it's probably more, you know, it's going to save your carbon footprint to drive that distance than to fly it. Um, or, you know, better yet take public transit that distance if you can, you know? Um, so again, it kind of comes down to like accessibility and options. Like what do you have available to you? Um, you know, in my neighborhood, like LA is not known for its public transit. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't like, I was driving 24 miles up to UCLA to finish my environmental science degree. 
because there was basically no transit options. I mean, there was transit options, but I had to take like a train and four buses to get there and it was going to take me four hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's, you have you, to do what you, you have to uh-huh. do in that situation. Kind of, yeah. So, you know, of course, I, like, looked for ride shares, and I commuted where I could. You know, I picked somebody up on the way, and, you know, I, you know, when it was time to upgrade my vehicle, I went for a plug-in hybrid. So at least, you know, 20 miles of that drive were with my electric motor, and I charged at home where we have solar. Like, you know, um, again, it's... It really depends on like what you have available to you, but thinking about what options are there and what's the best option that you can choose for that moment is, is where you should go. So yeah, education, <laughs> like yeah, learn about what causes the most emissions and what you can do, what you have in mm-hmm. your power to change, you know? Um, obviously I would love to see more investment in public transit, um, but, you know, and I think LA is getting there. It's just, again, you know, this, these infrastructure upgrades take time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it takes time to get people to use them and figure out how they're usable. And, you know, you really need to figure it out. Yeah. And one thing I was looking into just on the topic of cars, because I was like, oh, my God, like, you'll see these you know, I know that they're crazy people as soon as I see them on the internet, but they're like, your electric cars and their lithium battery are so detrimental to the environment. And it's like worse than, you know, driving a gas guzzler. I'm like, okay, that's a little, it seems a little extreme. Um, but then I was, I was reading up and I just want to see if you agree with this. So I read up on like hybrid versus electric. And what I could find is that first off, if possible they're always going to be better than cars that fully rely on gas in their like environmental footprint or carbon footprint and but that specifically between picking between electric and hybrid that it more comes down to where your state gets its energy from and is it more clean energy or is it more fossil fuels and so I looked at like this map and it showed more like the middle states in the country have a lot of energy that's reliant more on fossil fuels still. So it said hybrids would be the go-to in those states. And then obviously electric cars are more expensive, but on like the more rim of America, the outer states, it seemed that they have more clean energy. So if people could get electric vehicles, and I'm sure they'll become more accessible in the next decade, that that would be like a better choice. Is that what you've heard or read as well? Yes, absolutely. So if your city gets its energy from coal production, please don't get an electric car because <laughs> then gas, even just a straight up gas car, I think is better. Um, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends. Like, you know, ours is like largely natural gas um, because we have a lot of natural gas under, under our foot here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, that's, better than coal you know and again like I said like I try and charge at home where we have solar panels um our solar doesn't cover 100% of our electricity needs but it covers a pretty big amount um so you know whenever I can I try and charge at home versus charging away um but yeah please figure out where your city's electricity comes from before you invest in electric vehicle and I will also say Electric vehicles are coming down a lot in cost, not just for new cars, but you can get a used car pretty reasonably, um, 
you know, a hybrid or an electric, because there's a lot of fear about like the battery life, you know, and like the batteries are more expensive to replace. So people are like, oh, well, the battery might be going bad on this car, so I can't sell it for very much money. So you can get like some pretty good deals on electrics and hybrids um, if you're buying used and buying used is always the way to go if we're talking environmentally friendly. But again, let me reiterate, please don't get rid of your car until you absolutely have to. Like I had to get a new car when I was pregnant with the twins because I was in like a two door and like putting twins. Oh God. Like a tiny little two door that like two car seats were definitely not going to fit in. Um, you know, but we bought a used plug-in hybrid and then, you know, eventually when my husband had to replace his car, like we bought a full electric for him. So we have one plug-in hybrid and one electric. Um, and, and that's how we get around. And also it depends on like how much you drive too, right? Like, you know, because some of the electric cars don't have a very good range. So, you know, you might need something to have a gas motor if you're at least you know, hybrid or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, obviously like best is if you can limit your driving as much as possible yeah. because that's always the best case. But, um, but, you know, again, people have different accessibility options. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think another thing too, is just in general, sort of the underlying message is, and I know a lot of people are proponents of the zero waste movement. Although I try to think of things more as like reductionism, which I think is the whole message of this. How much can, what, what is okay for you? Like you don't want to be making yourself miserable and like unhappy because you're making changes that are making your life so difficult but you know I think it's been ingrained in everybody who's grown up in America that you need to consume things and you need to always be buying things and purchasing things but really like thinking about if you're actually going to use things and does this make sense is this something that I'm going to keep and just more of like a mindset and trying to make better decisions in your consumption and purchasing of things. And also, like you brought up before, with the whole uh, greenwashing marketing, like you're never really contributing to anything environmentally friendly by purchasing something else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have a bunch of plastic, like, Nalgene bottles at home, please don't go out and like toss those just to get a hydro flask or something like that. You know, um, I definitely think consumption would be the one thing that I can say across the board, at least in the U S like we could all consume a little bit less and probably be okay. I yes. mean, that's not true. I mean, there are people like, you know, the OG grandmas of the world, you know, who have like reused the same plastic bag for like six years. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, not everybody consumes at the same level, but a lot of us definitely could reduce our consumption. Um, like fashion is a big area where a lot of us are like, we have to be on trend and we have to have only new stuff. And like, it's somehow become the status symbol of like how much we can waste and how much we can consume. And like, that needs to change. And that's also a big thing with like talking about things like, you know, what the data says is like um, the biggest correlation for emissions is income. You know, the richer you are, likely the larger your carbon footprint is, you know? Um, 
So <laughs> didn't you tell me that the it's the top one percent creates double the carbon emissions of the bottom fifty percent or some crazy statistic? Yep, that's exactly right. Like the top one percent double the carbon emissions is the bottom fifty. That was like a recent, fairly recent study that came out. Um yeah, so you know, it's a problem. And like we see that, right? Like <laughs> I mean Look yeah. at, you know, the Bezos of the world, <laughs> you know, like, right. um, the, these people, like, you know, it is like a status symbol to waste and consume in excess. Yeah. Like people on their private jets, uh, <laughs> you know, every single time you go on Instagram, if you go on any influencers page, it's just swipe up links to purchase things. People getting subscription boxes is like the new rage. Yeah. And like, Honestly, you know, I... I think subscription boxes is better than just buying one little thing that comes in this huge box with all of this but packaging. Most people don't use what's in their subscription boxes. That's, they that's use true. one thing and then they don't use everything else. Or yeah. like, you know, I'm huge into like skincare, but I don't just try products to try products. Or if I do um, and it doesn't work out, then I like give it to some, find someone that really wants that product and it would be right for them. But I have like a bunch of friends who will just like try products to try products. And it's, I'm at the point now where it's driving me crazy. <laughs> oh yeah. I know. I feel like I've become that friend where like, yes. I like, I, it's funny. Cause like people will be like, Oh, sorry. I used a reusable coffee cup. And I'm like, I don't really care that much. <laughs> like, I'm not like sitting like silently judging you for everything. But you know, I would say like, I just, I kind of wish people gave more fucks, you know, like, yeah. that's just what I wish. It's like, I don't care about your one individual purchase. What I care about is like the trend that you're going on, you know, yeah. um, like, you know, and you know, that we can always talk about like, you know, what do you truly need? And I think that's my issue with the subscription boxes of like, okay, like you get this <laughs> they tell box. You what does you your need. toy, your, does your dog need 10 new toys every month? Like probably not. Like, can you get one subscription box a year when you need to replace those toys or whatever, you know, like yeah. get what you need because everything that we're consuming is consuming resources. Um, yeah. there's carbon footprint calculators that you can do, um, where it will ask you a bunch of questions about like what type of house you live in, like how many people live in your house and how you, you know, what your diet's like and what your transportation is like and all this sort of stuff. And it would, and it tells you how many earths you need if everybody lived like you, you know, <laughs> Oh yeah. God, I'm going to look that up later. <laughs> the first time I did it was like in that first environmental science course. And I swear it was like the thing that really shocked me because I will be honest. My first answer was 19 earths. We would oh need God. 19 earths if everybody lived like I was living at the time of that first environmental science I'm course. probably at like 20. What's the average <laughs> I, answer? I actually don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the average answer is. I know like mine's gotten a lot better, but even mine right now with all the stuff that I do and I like try really hard, <laughs> um, I'm still over one earth, you know, I think I'm at like 1.7 or something, you know, but living in America, you can't get down to what you need to with the way the state of the things are right now. And I think, so I think it's all about improvement. Like I know I'm never going to be perfect 
but I'm so much better than I used to be, and I hope to improve significantly in the future, and that's all you really can do, right? But exactly. I'm so yeah. competitive. Like, I'm going to try to get to one earth. Allie like, in a year is going to be like, oh, look at this. <laughs> like, you just, I'm like, awakened the giant. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I love and- it. I mean... Yeah, that's, that's what we need. We need everybody to like be competitive with their carbon footprint and be like, no, I need to like get this down. Um, you know, and there's there's Earth Overshoot Day that everybody could pay attention to, right? Like that's the day that theoretically we have used more resources than what the Earth can replenish in one year. And every year it gets earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. Like that's interesting. I like that. Yeah, so I well, mean, I don't there's like a lot it, of these but... things out there, you know, of resources for people to find out, you know, where most of their emissions are coming from. Um, but, you know, I, okay, I will say, like, so I went to, like, the climate march that happened, was it earlier this year, last year? I don't know what time it is. It's COVID. Whatever. Time is It relevant. was probably <laughs> yesterday, but it felt like two years ago. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and my sign um, said, don't just strike, but act. And then I had a list of things that people could do to help with their environmental footprint. Um, and then at the bottom of my sign, it said, slow progress is better than no progress, because that's what we need. Like, you know, there's a really famous zero waster. Um She's called Zero Waste Chef. And she has this quote that's like, we don't need, you know, one person who can fit their trash in a mason jar, like one person who's doing zero waste perfectly. We need a million people who are doing it imperfectly, you know, Um, that's more important. More important is getting everybody on board with this in some way or another, like whatever, if you're a fashionista and you're never going to like not be a style seeker like that's fine there's still ways that you can cut your fashion footprint like you know we we all have these abilities right we we can all do something we just need to do something you know instead of just being like listing all of the reasons that we can't do these things you know um because that's what I see a lot is like well I'm a busy mom so I can't do this or I I, I can't grow my own food I can't do this and I'm like it's just, I don't care if you grow your own food it's like establishing them as habits and again like they don't have to be big things it can be a lot of little things that once you incorporate into your routine it becomes second nature like for us it was we have the garbage can and then the recycling bin are in the same container so it's not like you have to go out of your way if something is plastic or aluminum you put it in that thing if it's garbage it goes in this thing like little little things like that yeah yeah and another like if people want a little trick want to like some simple things I found is like for me it was realizing that I have a lot of stuff I don't actually need or use so I've been utilizing either Facebook marketplace to sell things or my local buy nothing group to give things away. Oh my gosh. Everybody join a buy nothing group, please. They are amazing. We have one locally called good shit long beach and I'm like (laughs) loving it. Like people are getting rid of so much stuff. People are getting what they need. Like, yeah, it's great. It's so much better than so great. (laughs) Yeah. It's so much better than like, I think in the past, the only options were like you give yourself to like good stuff to Goodwill or Salvation Army, but I know that a lot of stuff ends up getting thrown out. Um, and why not directly give things to people? And also, 
then those things get sold or for profit or something in this way. And you don't make any of that. (laughs) This comes back down to connecting with your community and figuring out what those around you need, you know? Um, So, yeah. Really, I would love to, like, never buy anything new ever again. That's Mm -hmm. not always realistic because sometimes I need something in time frame that I can't find it used or, you know, like we bought like, um, some patio furniture this year used and like, I hated buying that patio furniture new, um, excuse me. I think I said used, but, um, I hated buying it new, but I had looked for like six months for what I was looking for and I couldn't find it used. So eventually I was just like, okay, like, yeah. I, but you're going to use it. You're going to love it. You know, you're going to. I'm going to use it, it until it's can. dead, dead, dead. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, I was going to be like, you know, the crabbiest patio furniture at the end of his life, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and I take care of it. Right. Like, that's the other thing is, is don't just like be super hard on your stuff. Like, take care of what you have. Like, you know, honor the resources that went into whatever you bought new or, you know, even used, right? Like make it last as long as you can. That's the most environmentally friendly thing you can do. Yeah. I want to switch us to hot topic. And I think this is really big among my generation. Um, So a big conversation between me and a lot of my friends is Number one, worrying about like if having children is contributing to the climate crisis. And then number two, are things going to be so bad that I shouldn't be having children because I am, you know, they're going to live in this terrible apocalyptic world and die young. And obviously this is really personal and I certainly do not judge anyone for having, you know, four children if that's really what they want to do and that's their joy in life and they really want to be a lovely parent but I think there's a lot of us that get very wrapped up in you know uh I know many people my age who are specifically not having children because they are worried about the climate crisis and I just wanted to know what your thoughts on that were I have a lot of feelings (laughs) (laughs) I mean okay I'm gonna preface this by saying that like I always wanted to be a mom Like, that was the thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had to do in vitro to get my babies. Um, So it took a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I always wanted to be a mom. Um, That was not having kids was just kind of not an option for me. But I do feel a lot of, like, guilt and worry that, you know, that they're going to grow up and that I won't have done enough to make their life habitable. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's the reality of it. Um, so it really just all depends. It depends on how quickly we get our act together. Um, and, and again, that's a really personal choice. Now for the people who are saying like, nobody should have kids, like it's super irresponsible. Um, I just want to say that like, mostly we hear that with like (laughs) eco-fascists. Um, like, so yeah. Um, good term. (laughs) Yeah. So, so overpopulation, when we talk about overpopulation, right. Um, this is sort of shifting gears into like more demography, right. Of who has babies, who has lots of babies, um, and who doesn't, right. Like the U S I think right now we're, I, don't quote me on this, but I think we're kind of like 
at replacement or under replacement, right? Yeah, I think a little under. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure you're right, but mm-hmm. I don't remember. Well, it's exactly. probably because we're waiting longer. To yeah, have and kids. that's so definitely I think a it thing. shifts everything. Yeah, and then yeah. that well, that limits how many kids you're going to have if you're waiting exactly. until like you know. And then some people really, by the time they decide they're ready, there's like fertility issues, or you know, <laughs> and they can never have any kids if you're like yeah. deciding at 39. Yeah, I'm so, ready so now. we're fixing the issue ourselves. It's horrible. Yeah, it's well, horrible. sort of, right? Like because people are like, we're still having too many babies, but it's not us. It's like Africa and like you know, developing nations that are you know having these. And like, that is a bunch of racist BS. (laughs) Um, Because the fact of the matter is, is that the people who are having high numbers of kids still live in places where child mortality is really high. And also, they do not have the carbon footprint of us, (laughs) you know? (laughs) We are below replacement and our carbon footprint is like so astronomically high that like, it really doesn't matter how many kids they have because like, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We are consuming ourselves more resources then they will use, you know, it, we're consuming more resources in like a short period of time than they'll use it in their lifetime, you know? Um, and, you know, there's plenty of data that says, you know, when places get better health care and like those child mortality rates go down, that fertility rates also go down, you know? So like, again, this is like demography, a whole other section of science that I am not that well versed in. I had to take some of it because um, part of my degree was geography. So, you know, talking like I was forced to take human Mm -hmm. geography. I really liked the science, (laughs) like (laughs) give me climatology, hydrology, and like geomorphology any day. Um, But like I had this great great population geography teacher, you know, who, who talked about this stuff and, you know, yeah, like you know, the countries with the highest birth rates at the end of the day are the lowest emitters of greenhouse gases, okay? And, like, how I sort of thought about this with, like, um, my kids is that, like, I did not obviously grow up learning the things that I know now, right? I had to come to this on my own, and I had many years of consuming 19 earths of <laughs> resources Pathetic. Um, you know before I got my environmental science degree and like yeah you know and the people who are denying climate science are not gonna stop having kids you know True. and they are teaching their children to deny climate science or so like or just from, not teaching them good habits like you no can, we're not it's almost just as bad to deny it as it is to not acknowledge it and not teach your kids, hey, when the toothbrush is in your mouth, turn off the water so it's not just running. Like, little things like that. Yeah, like, basically what I think is I'm like, my kids are going to have such a different experience. You know, they are going to grow up with this stuff ingrained. Like, I remember um, my kids were, like, 18 months old. I put them in, like, a toddler dance class. And <laughs> it was hilarious because, of course, it's, like, chaos because 18 months old you know they don't follow any directions um but like the teacher was doing this funny thing where she was like peeling a a fake banana like a hypothetical banana and she was like eating the banana and then she's like what do we do with the peel and my kid like 18 months old piped up and went compost (laughs) (laughs) 
I highly I doubt like, that in child. LA that was the only kid that would have said that in, yes. in all of LA. Yeah, like I mean, the, ta- the, te- the look on the teacher's face was like, whoa, okay. Um, so you know, like the so these environmental environmentally friendly practices are normalized for my children. They are not something that's like you know, mom's a hippie or anything like that. Yeah. Like, this is just their experience. Like, you know, they're growing up with their garden and, you know, they're growing up with, you know, composting. They're growing up with mom being like, turn off the water. Like, yeah. My, okay. Can I tell you, can I tell you what my mom does? And this, and I guess I'm not, you know, I'm from the generation, whatever, millennial, whatever you want to call it. My mom she eats yogurt every day on her way to work and or at work and she they don't recycle at her job or at least um well she works in a hospital like an outpatient I guess it's not like you know obviously there's no bins it's not obvious so she puts the yogurt container in her locker and at the end of the week when she has all five yogurts she brings them home and puts them in the recycling bin see I love that you know it's like you know, it's a small actions, like... But it makes her feel yeah. so I mean, good. No, it makes her Allie, feel great. I made the same change. When I was an intern, I was, like, depressed because of residency, and I would just, like, toss my recyclables because they didn't have recycling. They don't have recycling at hosp- most hospitals. I would just toss them in the trash, and now I, like, if I ever have anything, I carefully put it, like, back in my bag to bring home to recycle. Yeah. yeah. Well, also, I do, because we haven't covered this, and I do think that this is an important thing to bring up, is that, like, you know, recycling is kind of a fallacy um that most yeah. people don't understand like I think the rate is that like only nine percent of what we put in our recycling bins is actually recycled into yeah. another product so you know there's there's definitely like you know again nuance to talk about these things but like again we just we really need somebody to like take that extra step and and not just to take that extra step because again it's like you know, individual impact is like negligible in terms of like systemic impact. Like, but you know, I, I, Allie, I like to believe that your mom is, is, you know, cares about recycling. And so she's going to be like, okay, like, oh, if I know that this isn't getting recycled, maybe I'll choose like a bigger container and I'll put it in my own container. Or like, I'm going to vote for somebody who's going to like increase like don't worry you know, she will the market yeah the market for for recycled goods you know like like there's there's so many things that we can do there's so much it would be impossible to cover all of the things that we could do to to be better humans yeah. for the planet and each other um in one podcast but the best thing is that we just got to give a grab like we need to learn and we need to just try something, you know, something's mm-hmm. better than nothing. Yeah. And as far as recycling, I like watch something on Netflix about it and I learned that, you know, we send all the recycling to like Asian countries and they can't even do things with a lot of the stuff. It doesn't make sense financially to, you know, actually recycle things that aren't generally like number ones or twos. So that was something that I learned. Obviously, if you can avoid that stuff altogether, it's great. But if you do use something that's recyclable, then in that case, please wash it out and stick it in the recycling. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning washing it out. Like, cause that's something <laughs> that a lot of people don't do is they just like, you know, 
put their grody food stuff and, and, and yeah. contamination is a big reason why things don't get recycled yep. a right, lot of the right, 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 so, right. Um, yeah. And plus, why know, would you want it don't... stinking up your, I mean, well, my mom obviously okay. recycles her dairy well, yogurt. I mean, rinses it out so it doesn't smell for a Well, here's the thing. Someone told me when I was in medical school, I went, there was this girl in my med school and she was like, you know, very... I guess progressive would be a good term. So I asked her something about like recycling and she told me, oh, you shouldn't wash your recycling, which is the biggest falsehood. So please don't listen to that. She said, because they're just going to wash it at the facilities anyways. So I felt really weird about it. But for, this is terrible. (laughs) For a few months, I stopped washing everything because she told me I was wasting water. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) But yes, there's this. So essentially, if you don't wash your stuff, you're contributing to quote, wish cycling, which is where, like, you <clears throat> wish that something was recyclable, so you put it in the recycling, but all it does is end up contaminating, you know, potentially large amounts of things that could have been recycled, and now they're all going to have to get thrown out in the trash. And something else that people don't know is that you shouldn't bag your recycling. Oh, no. Oh, God. Even yeah. if it's in a recyclable <laughs> I know people did bag, that. even if it's in plastic. Yeah, because it's too hard, like... So actually, I highly recommend everybody, if you can go to your city's waste management website and see if you can take a tour of your local, you know, we'll figure out where your trash is going. Because like here, our trash is incinerated. Um, And but, you know, you can take a tour sometimes of your recycling facilities um, and see the process of it. So, you know, bagged recycling, like you know, there's a big assembly line in our facility where people are like sorting out things like here's the aluminum, here's the paper, here's the like plastic, here's, you know, everything. Um, and anything that's bagged, like they can't sort it. So they just Uh, toss it in the landfill. Yeah. But they could just rip open the bag and everything comes out. I mean, they would, but you know, when you're dealing with like massive amounts of waste that's like a huge time suck to like have to rip open every single bag i didn't know that yeah i know um, you should check your like local bags your your local municipality because it it might be different you know maybe your city has you know something that's like you should bag your yeah but like most places yeah you shouldn't bag your recycling when i looked up my city it said like you know like it was very limited like things that would be labeled one or two is all that we accept so once I read that I was like okay well now I know that I shouldn't be recycling the other stuff and try to limit those things not that I was really using stuff that wasn't ones or twos in large quantities because yeah that much cycling yeah people will just be like this looks recyclable I'm gonna put it in there you know and Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's changing a lot right now because, um, you know, China, who took a lot of like the U.S. recyclable materials is basically being like, yeah, no, we don't really want your stuff yeah. anymore because it's like yeah. too hard and it's not worth it for us. Um, so like our city just announced that they're like not taking a bunch of stuff that they used to take because it's just not possible for them to find a market mm-hmm. for it anymore. So, um, so yeah. So of course, like, you know, the three R's, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. Like they're in that order for a reason. Like reduction should always be your biggest goal. Um, then how if can you can, use it? yeah, yeah. Like I like make beer traps 
in my gar- my veggie garden because beer catches like slugs and roly polies. So I have like all these like old like tiny Tupperware containers or not Tupperware, but um, you know like a cream cheese container or something like you know mm-hmm. a yogurt container that's like a beer trap in my garden now. <laughs> you know, um, and yeah, and so you know thinking about which ways that you can to get things out of the waste stream in whatever way you can or like the twins are really bug obsessed right now so like any plastic thing with a lid has like automatically become like a bug catching jar um so that's so cute you know yeah like you just you do what you can and you know don't beat yourself up for what you can't do because like Mm -hmm. I was doing that for a long time I was like I can't buy cereal because heaven forbid, it's like, you know, coming in a plastic bag that I can't recycle. And then I was like, okay, (laughs) not a chili roll. (laughs) Like, you know, like I can't like, you know, especially when we come down to like time accessibility for everything to make everything from scratch to avoid packaging. Like some people just don't have that ability. So waste is like one small facet of your environmental footprint. You should think Mm -hmm. more holistically about everything that you can do and not kill yourself for what you can't do. Yeah. So, you know, obviously we've discussed a lot of these things as the episode has gone on, but is there anything that we haven't directly talked about that since you've learned about the climate crisis, that is a way that you've changed your life and how you live that you would like to share? I mean, I don't think it's an understatement to say that everything about my life has changed since I learned about how big of an impact we're having and how how imperative it is that we change right now, you know, like that we don't have unlimited amounts of time for us to figure this out, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I think I would say the biggest change is like, just like, I went really hard into like community activism, <laughs> which was not something yeah. that I did before. Um, and again, like anti-racism work, like, you know, people would be like, well, you can't be an environmentalist if you're not vegan. And I thoroughly disagree with that because there are a lot of people who eat meat around the world who have very low impacts on the earth, you know, indigenous populations and whatnot. Um, but I would say that it's impossible to be an environmentalist or it's impossible to be an effective environmentalist if you're not engaging in anti-racism work and, you know, advocating for people with less privilege than you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. And, you know, there's all these ways that if you are privileged, you really can sort of, you have the the time and the money to really reduce your carbon footprint if you wish to, but there are other people who have a lot less options and, you know, they probably would care to reduce their footprint if they could, but it's not really possible when, you know, you're focused just on making it to the next day or things like that. But another thing I wanted to mention was obviously the wildfire situation on the West coast is really recent And I heard a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's just because there haven't been enough controlled burns. But I know that's a component of it. But would you like to touch on potentially how specifically the change in our climate is impacting things like, you know, wildfires or or even other, you know, 
changes with can, storms can I take like, a so stab parents at it? everywhere yeah go for it because i'm reading um this book uh it's called i'm sure you've heard of it the tale of two planets um mm-hmm. and it's by it's by a few authors and they basically it's a compilation of little stories about all over the from all over the world uh south america um you know greenland iceland um asia everywhere you get it so um they were talking about flooding, but I could see how this could relate to forest fires. So if there's, if the temperatures increase and, or there is less uh, rainfall, the ground is obviously, it gets dry, it cakes, it can't retain water. So it causes flooding. But I would think along that same vein, if there's less water, you know, in the soil or, you know, on leaves or in trees, then you're going to increase the risk of fires. Is that pretty much it? Or is, I'm sure there's more to it, but I just, I really wanted to shout out this book because it's amazing. So I thought I would just like, <laughs> I haven't read that one. I'm going to have to read it. It's <laughs> so good. Okay. So with California wildfires, like we definitely know that like one of the ways that climate change is going to impact our region is through drought. Um, so obviously I'm sure you have heard, you know, California being prone to drought, you know, a few years ago we had like a super drought and that definitely contributes to our wildfire situation. Now I will say like wildfires in our area are normal. In fact, some of our vegetation can't even germinate their seeds without fire, um, which is why the indigenous practice of controlled burns is something that we should probably consider going back to. But slash um, and burn, right? That's what it's called? Where they would cut the crops and then burn? Um, yeah. I, I mean, slash and burn is one thing. I don't know if that's, like, technically what, like, the indigenous people who lived here would do. Um, like, I know there's, like, cycles for our vegetation. Like, our first, you know, phase is, like, small grasses and then shrubs and then, you know, trees and whatnot. So, um that's, you know, part of our local ecology. However, one, we have built a lot of stuff in areas that are prone to wildfires. <laughs> so clearly we do not want to control burn our houses or our backyards. <laughs> um, so that's a little different. Um, but like, two, we know that the wildfires are getting increasingly worse because of our droughts and because of increased temperatures and things like that. So for anybody who's out there listening, who's in California, like, this is our new normal. Like, you know, we will have fire season pretty much every year. Um, I will say that if we don't get serious about climate change, it's going to get worse and worse. Okay. So as bad as it has been this year, um, again, it's kind of like the temperature, right? Like it's the hottest year on record, but it's just going to get worse if we don't do something about this. So, um, you know, we could, we could certainly use to like, listen to the indigenous population that has been here for thousands of years because they They knew a thing or two. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) somebody that lived here for tons and tons of time and like completely relied on the resources locally. (laughs) Like, yeah. So, um, you know, I definitely think that that's a thing. Um, but you know, 
certain areas are just, you know, going to be hit harder than others. Like where I am, I'm like really close to the coast. There's a lot of city between me and any brush that's going to like get on fire. So like I'm at pretty low risk. Um, I am at risk for severe poor air days um, because that's our new normal whenever there's fires yeah. outside of the city, um, especially with like the geography of the LA basin, right? Like we kind of like are prone to like inversion layers and, you know, our smog kind of gets like stuck in the LA basin, which has like mountains on the sides of it. Um, so it's, it's a thing that we all need to be prepared for. We should all have emergency kits and we should have those for earthquakes anyway. But, um, but we really, you know, we need to care about the climate crisis. Otherwise, our fires are going to be more than we can handle. Yeah. On that note, I think we should sort of end our episode by, and this has already sort of been discussed, but not maybe not in full, by sort of talking about the timeline that could be expected if we can hit on it. And like, even if things turn around, you know, best case scenario being realistic if real policy change came maybe in the next five years or something like that like what will we still be looking at and then if you know we're more pessimistic and we have people who are not allowing policy change to happen at all and you know any change gets delayed until things are really bad like you know and I know there's a spectrum but like do you have thoughts like when you think about like the timeline I mean we need to do things as soon as possible that's the plain and simple, like we really needed to start this in the nineties when we knew it was how big of a deal it was going to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no way again to tell like we have five years or we have this, like, you know, there's that climate clock that just went up. That's like seven years. If we don't like, you know, hit one point seven, one point five C I'm actually really surprised that it says we have seven years for that baseline because I would say like I would be shocked if we you know even if we changed today on a large scale if we avoided hitting two degrees celsius and warming um but I don't know I could be wrong and I really hope I am (laughs) um you know I am not like the end-all be-all expert on all of this you know take everything I say with a somewhat of a grain of salt. I mean, I definitely have spent a lot of time researching this, so I probably know more than the average bear, but um, I I think that, again, we are working with a best case scenario and a worst case scenario. And the longer we wait, the worse our best case scenario gets, <laughs> um, you know? So, and, and, and again, it's not just about the greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, we're losing biodiversity we're causing so many species extinction that we have no idea how that's going to impact us like long term you know there's a great book for anybody who's a reader called the sixth extinction and it's pretty depressing but it's very realistic and it talks about how we are literally causing a mass extinction on the scale with the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs (laughs) yeah Uh, and they mentioned that in the book i'm reading as well um about I think it's about like flooding uh, this one particular chapter and it kind of talks about how um, the animals like left and they never came back 
like even when the flooding had kind of died down. And the quote is, um, and I think they're talking specifically about foxes in this situation because their dogs would like, they would all howl, but it was like, the quote is, could an animal's sense of home be so fragile that the slightest change in its environment sent it scurrying elsewhere? You know, they don't know what, they don't understand what's going on. They, you know, and it's, that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. And we don't prioritize this stuff, you know, like conservation jobs are some of the like, you know, hardest to get and lowest paying in environmental stuff because people don't care about one tiny species of butterfly or a a rat or, you know, that sort of stuff. They're just kind of like, whatever, you know? So that's another thing that I would say is like, get curious about your environment, you know, see what kind of plants and animals are supposed to be there and how you can help foster that. That's like a huge thing that you can do. Plant native plants. Oh my gosh, please like cut it out with the lawns that are just water hogging and don't do anything. (laughs) Yes. You know, like plant natives that are native to your area because, you know, we just, we need more of like, what evolution has put in place you know um we're we're rapidly changing things in all facets of life and we have no idea what the consequences are going to be at the end of the day i mean it's we're playing a really big science experiment right now and it might end with the destruction of humans. And we already know it's destroying a lot of other species, but it might also destroy us too. So, sorry. And I think that's, (laughs) yeah, but I think that's a good note to end on. And I think the takeaway is, you know, start by educating yourself and those around you and do the things that you can do to stop at least to you know, limit your contribution to the climate crisis. So everything that we discussed that was like um, resources, we will probably try to list in the bio description of this episode, but we'll also post a lot of the stuff on our Instagram um, for the podcast and everything will be linked and people should have access to a lot of the resources we discuss. But anyways, thank you so much for this consult. Thank you. So nice meeting you. Super important. (laughs) You too. Thank you for having me on and for trying to bring awareness to such an important issue. Yes. Thank you so much.